Before I introduce today's guest, I want to share with you all some very, very exciting news. We here at the Charlie Charlie One podcast have our first ever sponsor. Yeah, that's right. We have a sponsor on board now who is going to help us to continue and to carry forward the Charlie Charlie One podcast. So before we get into today's interview, can I please introduce you all to our sponsor, the Royal Marines Shop. Now, I know many of you listeners are already aware of the Royal Marines Shop and who they are and what it is that they do. But for those of you who aren't, let me very quickly break it down. The Royal Marines Shop was started several years ago now with the intention of producing and selling Royal Marines branded merchandise. But they do it with a little bit of a difference. So what do I mean by that? Well, first of all, they are fully licensed by the MOD to sell that merchandise and to brand it with Royal Marines branding. And secondly, at the end of every financial year, they gather up all their profits, they gift aid it, and they donate it to us here at RMA, the Royal Marines charity. So they are fully legal and licensed to sell anything with Royal Marines branding on. And not only do you get a high quality piece of Royal Marines merchandise when you buy from them, but you also get the warm fuzzy feeling that all of their profits are coming over to the charity to further help and support members of the Royal Marines family. Now, when we invite people on the podcast, we like to get people who can inspire or educate or entertain. Sometimes we come at it with a very serious angle and sometimes we just like to tell stories. And in today's episode, that's what I want to do. My guest today is a former Royal Marine called Scott Booth, and he's going to tell us a little bit about his time in the Corps, when he joined, what he got up to, his reasons for leaving, how he handled that transition period. And then we finish this episode telling quite an interesting story, actually, um, about how things serendipitously led him down the path that he's on now. I'm not going to say any more than that. So sit back, relax, grab a wet, pull up a sandbag, and let me introduce you all to former Royal Marine Scott Booth. Scott, welcome to the Charlie Charlie One podcast, mate. Thank you for giving up your morning on this glorious, is it Wednesday? Yeah, Wednesday, today, all day. On this glorious... We get men today, don't we? Oh yeah, I better go. it's 11 o'clock now, we've only got till 12 and it's sports maker men. <laughs> okay. Well, we're going for a run ashore. Uh, probably my kitchen for a cup of tea because <laughs> we're old men now, we don't do that anymore. <laughs> but mate, thank you for giving up your time to come on the podcast this morning. Um, I'm looking forward to diving in to your story, uh, both in and out the core, um, bringing us up to date to what you do now because I think this is going to be really interesting um, to some of our listeners. And we, we spoke off air just now and I said, you know, some of these things have a structure to them. 
you know, if I'm talking to members of staff within the charity, the aim of that is to get across who they are, what they do and who they can support. If I'm talking yeah. to a fundraiser, I want to dig deep into what they're doing, why they're doing it. You know, maybe they're training and all that kind of stuff. But sometimes it's just nice to hear a story, you know, a story about someone who's served in the core, who's transitioned outside, who's ridden that roller coaster of the highs and the lows, who's come out the other side and has just done some cool stuff along the way. So, you know, that's what I want to talk about today, mate. So most of the talking is going to be done by you. I'm going to hand it over to you. You start where you want to start. You go in whatever order you want to go in. And uh, when we finish, we finish. Happy days, mate. Happy days. Well, I think it's doing what bootnecks do best is spinning dicks, right? Oh, yeah. We love a dick. We love a dick. <laughs> We've all got to have dicks to spin, haven't we? But I, I think... First and foremost, thanks thanks for the opportunity, Mark. It's great. And um, actually, I think it kind of led on really to listening to yourself and some of the other podcasts that some of the boys are doing at the moment. Um, they're really quite inspirational. And, you know, I know that you'd sort of sent a bit of a Charlie Charlie one out just to sort of say, you know, if you've got something to talk about, come on and have a chat. And I thought, well, my life's been a little bit different Um and you know some some people find it interesting and it sort of winds around a little bit but fundamentally it all starts off with joining Limston and uh you know joining this brotherhood that we're, we're lucky to be in and, and and we'll be into the sort of day we sort of pass really and I think that's the interesting bit for me is because it has been an interesting journey. And for me, I joined um, in September, 1991, 625 Troop. Oh man. Um, yeah. So, right. it, uh, <laughs> yeah. So 625 Troop and um, I was a junior bugler uh, in, in amongst a few of us. And um, I'd have, I, I just wanted to be in the military since I was about five years old. You know, I think I was, brought up on war films and my grandparents being in the military and at that point of course we'd seen the Falklands take place and and it was the first Gulf War absolutely desperate to join up and get into that and I'd seen my mates actually gone off and joined up the army and stuff and I, I just wanted to be part of that whole sort of philosophy and ethos and actually initially dare I say this out loud and recorded live but I kind of wanted to join the Paris. Uh-oh. Boo hiss. And it was because my granddad was in Paris. So and my other granddad was in the RN, full ser uh, full service career. And both had served and it was like, geez, where do I go with this? You know, I've got to, got to appease both both elements. And I went down to Aldershot at the time and I did the P Company uh, assessment weekend as it was and passed that and was offered my place. Um, and then actually I, I still had to sit my GCSEs at the time and uh, they said, well, we want to take you now. I said, I can't. Um, I've still got to do my GCSEs. My parents, of course, wouldn't let me at the time. Um, and the, the, the army careers officer said, well, you know, you've got the, you've got the potential sort of qualifications to go and get a trade. Why don't you fancy going into the signals and then doing your sort of airborne training? I thought, well, that sounds all right. No problem. So I sort of accepted that and was due to join the army. And in the, in, in the in, in between sort of time, really, I'd seen an ad for the Corps. And it was kind of Royal Marines commandos, you know, the world sort of fighting elite. And, you know, it just looked actually quite Gucci. And um, I thought, well, why not? I've got time on my hands. I'll go, go and see what we can do. So I went to the careers office again. I stepped right instead of stepping left. 
um, did all the uh, the various sort of tests and medicals and went down to Limston to do PRC as it was then. Past PRC was offered a place uh, and literally had the choice between the army and uh, the corps then. So how do you make that decision? At Mate, that time, let, let me jump in. I'm very, 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 very sorry to interrupt, but I know I'm not going to be the only one thinking this, right? Yeah. And this is an integrity shout. Yeah. Which was harder, the P Company beat up or the PRMC? Well, the honest truth of it was, I would definitely say uh, that the, the, the course sort of beat up the, you know, potential recruits course as it was then. And the only reason I say that is because it just seemed to be more intense. Whilst the Paris was good and it was, it was all, it was kind of made out to be. I don't know, physically, I just found the call quite hard, but I like that. For me, it was actually more of a, an incentive to join the corps because I like things to be hard anyway. So um, the next sort of decision came then on that was, well, what do I do? Uh, I, I liked the corps, but actually I thought, and I swear to God, this is true. Okay. I just thought the kit looked Gucci that you got in the corps. Okay. And, uh, uh, that was a big thing as well. So I thought, right, I'm going to flip a coin heads or tails. And I flipped a coin and it came down and it was the corps and the rest, as they say is history. So I turned down the army, joined the corps, I never ever looked back. Um, so I ended up joining September 1991, 625 troop. Uh, I think there was 59 of us started, um, and I think whittled down to about 16 by the end when we passed out in May 1992. So that was that was an incredible, incredible experience. And um, yeah, I think the thing I liked about training was it was intense. You know, you didn't have a minute to think about anything other than sort of the task that you were given in hand. And it was it was just it was awesome. You know, I loved every minute of training um, and, and, and it was it was great. Made some great, great friends there. And, uh, you know, we all went our various ways come the end. And um, as, as you were mentioning the other day, mate, in Puzzle Palace, selecting choices, all of us wanted to sort of go and be GD, I felt pretty much at that time. And that was certainly the route I wanted to go. I made the fatal mistake of actually selecting six to be my second choice. Okay. And of course, any, any inkling of sort of uh, yeah. an expression of interest, you, you were obviously sent off to um, the various yeah. trades. Yeah. So off I went and I did six and I did that for about four years. I've got to admit, it, it really wasn't my bag really. I didn't particularly enjoy it, but the lads were absolutely hoofing. Um, the job itself, you know, it was what it was, um, but I always wanted to go back to doing general duty. So that's what I ended up doing is I went back to, to grabbing it, uh, back to 40 Commando and Alpha Company, which I just love in my element again. And then a unique opportunity came up um, at that time. So uh, the Navy couldn't supply enough medics to basically um, service the Corps. Um, so there were, there were MAs, but they just couldn't pass the commando course. So what they did is at that time, which was 1997, they asked for volunteers from the Corps to go and do the medics course, uh, which, you know, seemed actually a fairly sensible thing to do because you get some decent qualifications. I've worked with a lot of hoofing MAs, really, really good lads. And at that time, a few of the lads were actually transferring or had transferred to the Royal Navy to become MAs. So it was the best of both worlds for me because I could stay being a bootneck, but also go and do a trade actually that I thought was pretty good. Yeah. So off we went, 
and to Kyo Barracks, which was an amazing experience. You know, we rocked up and seven bootnecks, all of us, a couple of tours over Northern Ireland and, uh, you know, Bosnia and the like under our belts, all rocked up with tapes on. And you're in this environment full of sort of kids, literally, that have come from basic training, whether it's RAF, Navy or Army, um, and then learning their trade. So we, we, we turned up thinking we were super Gucci. Um, and actually all we were were just guys going along and um, essentially sort of looking for a trade. But it was, it was an amazing course. And uh, I think it certainly shook the establishment at Keogh Barracks, which was tri-service, to see these seven bootnecks rock up and basically kind of refuse to be doing sort of kit inspections and all this kind of stuff. All these young, young recruits and going to the NAFI every night and uh, having a few jars and sort of just relaxed, but then acing every exam every morning. It was an unusual situation for them, but yeah. for us, it was it was great, and um, great times, really great times, and the start of something that's now developed into its own branch, which is really good. So that was kind of where it went. I I got sort of posted back to Forty Commando then, and then that was nineteen ninety nine, and at that point. Um, Everybody was out on exercise, so I ended up as rear party MA, which was, you know, it was a pretty easy job, truth be told. There wasn't too much to do. It was just sorting the lads out with tuby grip and uh, pills, you know, yeah, all yeah. the good stuff. Um, and then, actually, I, I kind of prematurely, I had to make a decision because in the intervening years, I'd been through a relationship and had a young son at that point who was... Uh, by that point, probably about six. Um, and I wasn't getting access to my son. Um, and I sort of had to go through the courts to try and get this sorted. And really to cut a long story short, to try and get any kind of decent access to my son and, uh, and enough time, I was gonna have to leave the court, which for me was massively emotional because from five years old, five years old, all I ever wanted to do was to be in the military. And I just loved the core. It was everything that I wanted to be for my, for my life, really. But I had to make this decision uh, and it had to be the right one because, you know, family had to come first in that particular sort of scenario. And um, so I left, I left the core in June, June 2000 and really didn't have a clue what I was going to do because all I ever wanted to do is be a bootneck. And Essentially, uh, I had some. We, we used to get some medical representatives come to the sick bay to sell the doc pills, basically. And these guys would say, "Well, you know, why don't you try your hand at medical sales? You know, you you do first aid instruction. You know, you're confident guy. You do fine." So that's what I did. They gave me some numbers for recruitment agencies, and um, I applied for three jobs. Got three interviews. Uh, got offered three jobs. Okay. So. I had no idea really which one to take because I didn't have a clue what I was doing, if I'm honest. So I just took the one with the most money. <laughs> um, I took the one with the most money, which was a massive pay rise. I think at that time, you know, I got an extra four or five grand a year, which was mega. Oh, wow. Instead of two, that, it, was, it was awesome. They were going to give me a car. They were going to give me a phone, a computer. Life was good, you know. So off I went into the civilian world and, and that was okay. I was feeling pretty good about myself. But then about 18 months later, um, you know, I joined the RMR for a short time and sort of Gulf War II was kicking off and I was, right, I've got to get into this. I want to get, want to get out, be with the lads again. And of course, all the links were still fresh then. I want to do it. 
and was preparing to go and it never actually really happened which was you know it it, it was over before it really started in a sense and at that point i was really frustrated and just had had enough really you know i i, I felt then that i was at this point sort of almost sort of two years in really whereby i wanted to be a bootneck so badly but i couldn't do it it was almost the choice that was out of my control and just felt at the end at the end of my tether really everything had gone everything that had been you know when i used to come home on leave and used to see your friends or used to see family or people and they say what do you do or they knew that you were in a royal marines you were treated like a legend like you know yeah. you my god you're a, you're a royal marines commander you, you know you're you're massive and then suddenly i was a sales rep for a medical company it's not quite as you know it's not quite got the same wrath as it as as being a, a bootneck essentially so it was really hard actually that transition was massively hard I'd, I'd sort of been forced out of the career that i loved for the right decision to get custody of my son but i kind of felt like i'd had to give up my whole life really in terms of my career aspirations and i found that so hugely demoralizing and i felt gone i felt like i'd been cut off by the core it wasn't the core's fault but the networks at that time weren't as good as they are now that's for sure and um I'm lucky that I was supported and still am supported by some really, really top guys. Um, and, and sort of there's, there's a group of four of us that are super tight and close knit and always have been for sort of almost the best part of 30 years now. So that was the big thing that kept me afloat really, because there were times where I felt like I just couldn't handle it. I didn't, I didn't know what to do anymore because I, I, I just missed it so much. I missed the core. I missed the lads. I missed the banter. You couldn't have that banter. I'd never worked with women before, which sounds odd, but we hadn't until I'd done my MAs course and worked with a few, but then suddenly working with women again, which wasn't a problem in principle, but it was just different working routines. You're working with guys for 99% of the time. It's, it's strange to come into those roles. So yeah, my whole world felt like it had fallen apart for sort of probably two or three years of my life. And I found it really difficult. I felt very emotional and I struggled with that. And I felt that I just needed to find some direction in my life. And that's kind of where I kind of enter what I called the phase two period of my life really. And started to get really back into fears because for the first, as I say, sort of two, post two years where I went through that period of feeling really down and, and upset, sort of went for probably three years, put on a load of weight didn't do any fizz and just kind of just wallowed in self-pity actually is, is where I felt. So professionally, my career was all right. I was doing okay. No problem with that, but I just felt awful. So I decided to turn the bike around and started training again, training seriously and started getting into triathlons and working hard on triathlons. Now I'm a big guy. I'm sort of just shy of six foot, you know, 15 stones so i'm not exactly built for running and you know we're built for load carrying and, and speed marching that kind of stuff so it's quite tough to go out there when you've got guys that are racing snakes and you go out there but i was just determined to sort of go out there and make a difference to my own mind actually and save my sanity so i went off and started triathlon and started to do really really well we're sort of getting the top top 10 15 percent finish in all categories which was pretty good on local races and then um we come back to the story of the para. So a good friend of mine is a para sergeant major I trained with, and he'd done a lot of Ironman stuff. And just said, well, why, why, are you, why are you fannying around? You know, just get on, just do an Ironman. And that kind of freaked me out a little bit because at that time I was sort of coming up to 
43. And um, I thought, well, why not? I feel good in myself. Let's do it. Let's give myself a target. And, um, and off I went and started training with him to do that. And, you know, it really sort of took over. And I did a half Ironman to start because I was a bit afraid of it, if I'm honest. So I did a half Ironman, did really well in that. And that gave me the sort of spirit to want to go and do, uh, or the incentive to go and do a full Ironman, which was amazing. And I did it next year, which was last year, actually, which was at Tembi. And uh, that was, do you know what? That was an amazing experience because I was then sort of, I tipped the scales of being 44 and um, I, I felt as good. Do you know what? I felt as fit as I did when I was at Limston back in yeah. 1991, 1992. I, I just felt awesome. I felt great. And I, I had, um, I'm, I'm lucky to ride with the Royal Marine Cycling Club. And uh, in the early stages that they did some triathlon suits, you know, love getting in Lycra. <laughs> I bet they looked a bit pesty. I had to chuck a couple of puss of green socks down the front. You know, <laughs> but uh, it was, it was all good. So anyway, do you know what? It was amazing because I had this core sort of triathlon suit on and, um, oh man, around the entire course, you know, so it's, the Ironman's quite a long sort of race and it's 112 miles of uh, cycling and then you do a full marathon after. So there's a lot of time in front of the crowds, but these people were just spotting out the tri suit and you get, go on Royal, go on Royal. And and, and do you know what? It was amazing. And I mean, this was from people that were sort of, old boys sat down on the side of the road or, you know, it was young guys or whatever it was. And then suddenly you'd be racing and you get, all right, Royal, you get somebody pull up alongside you on a push bike. And it turns out it's a young officer that's sort of taking nods through training and you're doing a bit, a bit of fun, you know, as you do. And then a couple of lads on the rumoring sort of um, triathlon team come by and, and you know what, Mark, honestly, for a day, for a day, I was hanging out of my hoop, but I felt like a bootneck again. Mm-hmm. You know, it was so good. It was just amazing. And and that, that feeling is is awesome. And it's out there. And I think you come to wrestle your demons a little bit about leaving the core and that sort of being cut and feeling sort of disassociated with it. And the thing that I've really enjoyed actually over the last sort of five, ten years is seeing how well the RMA has grown and become more inclusive and trying to put their arms around the lads sort of you know whether they're in service out of service and the families i think it's just been staggering the way they've sort of picked up the baton and starting to really really run with it now and um you know as i say for me that was that was a big thing last year it was a big thing emotionally i have to say at the end of that mate i was chin strapped and um hanging out in my who big star but it was an amazing feeling to feel like i could still do this i still feel as good and i still feel as worthwhile as i did all those years ago and just that feeling of of sort of support network around you that as i said when you leave the core and you're just a sales rep or you become whatever you become and you're no longer a royal marines commando you feel like you're a little bit worthless actually you just remind yourself that actually the core taught you everything that you ever really needed to know in terms of your determination. You probably had that to start with, but you know what? It was really harnessed when you were there. And that's the thing that I love about it. And it's really set my sort of life professionally, which brought, brought me around to sort of the, 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 the other project that I've got involved into, which has been pretty amazing too. Before we move on to that, I just, a lot of the stuff you said, even from the beginning, it is so similar to my own journey, you know, I nearly joined the army, but ended up 
going into the core and all that kind of stuff. But I think a lot of people listening, whether they'll admit it or not, can relate very closely to what you're saying. So, you know, my version of what you said is when I, I remember walking into the bank once to get my first mortgage and the lady said, occupation. And I almost grew like three feet and went, we're Marines commando. And I watched her write it down the paper. And then at a point in my life when I took a year out and I was pretty much unemployed, I would go in to that same situation in the bank, maybe to extend my overdraft rather than get a mortgage application. And she'd say occupation and I'd say unemployed. And so I know exactly where you're coming from from a mental standpoint, when you think, I used to tell everybody I was a Royal Marine and I felt good, really good, because everyone knew who the Royal Marines were, what they're about, what it takes to become one. And now, you know, in your case, you're saying sales rep. In my case, it was, it was unemployed or, or it was security. And I think a lot of people listening to this can relate to that, you know, and maybe that I don't know. A lot of people, when they leave the court, they go into the security industry. So it must be a similarly good feeling to say close protection operative, maritime security professional, you know, whatever it is, you know, back when that was the big thing, I'm sure that made them feel equally as good. But I think my point is that it's a natural pro. It's a natural feeling. It's a natural progress. It's a natural part of the journey. Even if you jump in to something that you love when you leave, I think in the back of everyone's mind, saying Royal Marines Commando still felt a little bit better. You know, maybe not to everybody, but to some people, you know, you could say CEO of Barclays. But I think really at a party, you're like, hey, I'm a former Royal Marine. Do you know what I mean? So it's, it's a natural part of it, you know, going through that process um, and, then, and then being comfortable with where you are. And with what you said about, you know, when doing the triathlon and the blokes at the side going, go on, Royal. You know, I'm in a very unique and privileged position where I left the Corps July 1st, 2010 and went straight into a job with the RMA when it was much smaller um, back in September 2010. There are only six members of staff. And so I, I'm very lucky in that I still, 10 years later, don't feel like I've left. Yeah. Um, but that experience you had, I still get that now when I'm around the country and, and I'm out of Plymouth where I live and you know, in different parts of the country where the core is not so prevalent, when you see another bloke with a core tat or a bumper stick, I just literally was driving down the motorway just now and saw someone with a little global lull in the back window of their car. So I was driving, having a little shifty to see if I knew them, gave them a wave. Um, yeah, and it, it does make you feel like you're right back in the thick of it again, you know, and, and that pride comes back out. And then you remember that, you know, our mantra, once a Marine, always a, Royal, uh, always a Marine, isn't just a mantra. It, it is, it's true, you know, and like you said, the RMA has grown and come on leaps and bounds since what it was back in the day. And that is to encourage guys to, you know, once they've left, to stay in the fold. You know, they maybe don't want to go down the RMR route. You know, they go off and they live their civilian life, but they still want to stay in the fold. And there are things, like you said, the cycling group, there's a, a motorbike group, there's the football association, rugby, all these things outside of the core to keep the lads involved, to keep them feeling part of the family and to reiterate once a Marine, always a Marine. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I think, um, I think that's the thing. And, and, and I think that's the beauty of what 
and how the RMA has progressed for sure is that it's definitely given more opportunities for the guys. I mean, some people, you know what, you just get to the end of your time, you're threaders with it, I get it. But for, for, for I, I think probably for most people, we all have that element of, we miss it. In, in some way or another, we don't miss the getting chuffed around or wherever it is, but we miss the lads, we miss the banter. Mm-hmm. And that's what I find is, as I, I mentioned earlier, there's a group of four of us and we get together and our, our other respective halves kind of despair, but no, no, because when we get together, it's just being like in a mess deck or in your grot, you know what I mean? And just yeah. simple, banal banter of absolutely hammering each other. You know, and do you know what? It's great because all four of us are in pretty sort of reasonable, reasonable sort of positions in life now in terms of our jobs with really quite a lot of responsibility. And you know what? On that sort of day-to-day sort of basis where you're dealing with a customer or you're dealing with a patient, whichever role that you're doing, you have to be professional. And that's right. But you know what? What you want to do sometimes, you want to close the front door and you just want to let rip. You know, and just let say what you want and nobody's going to judge you and you just say what you want and um you know that is a decompression of sorts you know and that's massive you know it's uh and it's just good for the soul and i think that's the one thing that i really appreciate is that ability to sort of have you know opposed that are still there all these years later we can pick each other you know, pick up the phone to each other and just talk absolute nonsense which is great but also those dark points that you can pick the phone up and say i'm threaders or you know what i can recognize when they're threaders and they won't say anything but we know it anyway and we'll pick them up so it's about being there for each other and i think that's got to be the same sort of ethos and that's what i see coming through from the rma very much is being there for each other and picking you up when you need it but don't be afraid to ask because we're not also fortunate to have those three or four guys or girls that we can almost go to and they'll know when we're threaders or down and in the mouth and, and be able to sort it. But it's nice to know that there's the opportunity to be able to speak to someone or reach out and, and look for some assistance. And I think that's been the big thing um, for me, it, the lessons learned sort of post-core is that there was that period of absolute self-pity and frustration. And all I wanted to do is be back with the lads again and it couldn't happen as much as I wanted it to. Um, but you find peace for yourself. You find peace with your demons. And I think that's just by talking and, and, and actually understanding that there is opportunities out there. Even so you're outside, you can go and join the core cycling team. I mean, join the core cycling team as an example. You're cycling with loads of XRSMs and guys that, you know, you would have traditionally been absolutely shit scared of, excuse my French, but it's the truth, right? But now it's all just good banter and that's because you're all just bootnecks again. It doesn't matter. Kind of rank is off the shelf and yeah. you're just all getting on and having a good crack, which is which is awesome, actually. Really, really good because you can say, do you remember when you pulled me up or whatever it was? And uh, that's that's all good. You know, it's all good fun. So I had this experience recently, mate, where um, there's, a, there's a guy called Mark Bauer. I don't know if you know him, no. but he was... Um, he was doing a cycling event um, in lockdown. It was supposed to be the old Land's End to John O'Groats, but he had to change his route and everything to keep within the guidelines. And Mark is a retired colonel from Paul uh, down at the SBS, a legendary bloke um, who unfortunately had a, a massive stroke, which left him um, pretty badly paralyzed on one side and affected his speech and everything. But he came through Plymouth 
on his bike ride and uh, asked if I wanted to join him. So I went along on my little hand cycle. And in that pack, you had people like Colin Hearn, former RSM, who strapped himself to an Apache. You had Jim Morris, former Sergeant Major, first Sergeant Major of Hasler Recovery Center, MBE, former ML. And, and there, mate, there was this group, and I'm looking around, and there were other ranks, there were officers, and I never even got to Lance Corporal in the corps. And I'm looking around at all these people thinking, these guys are legends. Like, I, and I felt so honored and humbled to be in that group. And as we cycled through Plymouth, you know, you'd get some young, cocky, you know, 16-year-old lad who might be just bimbling around and make a remark at, at the group, as just, you know, cycle up a pavement and people have got to give way and i just i was just looking at people thinking you have no idea what these people have done collectively over their lives and it's legendary it's like you need to make films about these people and write books about them and i just felt so and i always i always love to do it like if i feel i'm doing okay in life i love to throw myself into this shark tank of people who are much bigger and better than i am to humble me and be like these guys are doing it better than you, Mark. They're doing it bigger than you. You need to up your game a little bit more. And yeah, just just that, I mean, I never told them, but that day was just so humbling for me just to be in their presence. And I loved it. And um, it's like you said, the, the banter gets thrown around. The rank's gone, you know. It's, it's always there, but it's different. You know, yeah. you have that banter with them. I agree. And I think the thing is as well, with the lads... You know, I, I always find that, you know, they're very sort of, uh, you know, t- t- typical sort of Royal Marine style is that they're very understated. You know, they don't go out shouting and telling you what they've done or they did. And quite right. I mean, actually, in my professional life now, not many people actually know that I was in the core because I don't really feel the need to, to go around and shout about it. Those that kind of know will know because they've probably served before. So they'll, they'll pick something up on the way that you do with your mannerisms or something. But that's the one thing I like is that, but you're right, is that you scratch beneath the surface. You don't look at uh, Fred who's going down the road as a postman and you don't see the life that he's led, mm. you know, um, and, and all those kinds of things. Yet that guy has been a legend in his own lunchtime, mm. you know, and, and it's, it's a really funny thing. You're right though. It brings you back to some sort of degree of normality. You think you're doing all right. And then you just get a little reminder from one of the boys. Do you remember that time when? And, and yeah. you're talking about someone's like, yeah, actually, that's really cool. Like you, you know, I mean, I kind of had a dog's watch, really, when I was in the Corps. And as much as we had Northern Ireland going on, Bosnia, a few other Kosovo bits and pieces as well. So it was that funny time whereby, you know, you weren't actively deploying like the stuff in Afghan and then Gulf War kicked off, you know, briefly, as we discussed. So it was kind of a fairly bit of an easy time. But then a lot of the lads, as I say, continued to serve. I'd, I'd done sort of nine years, but they went on to do full term and picked up the majority of the herricks and stuff that went on. And yeah, you, I, I feel humbled in their presence, knowing what they've done and what they've seen. And it's like, pff, I did nothing, you know. But um, yeah, it's amazing, mate. You're right. It's a life check. It's an affirmation. And, and I always say to myself, I never have bad days. I think most of us will pull that out as we see the reality of being frustrated with a day's work or somebody's not doing something or something hasn't happened, but then we know about day when we see it. Yeah. So we can distinguish between that. And that's, I think the difference as well. Yeah. Now you alluded earlier to the next phase of your life. Um, should we dig a little bit deeper into that? 
Yeah, we can do. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? You've probably, if, if everybody could see it, you could probably see these pictures behind me here. It's of um, Spitfires. Um, so, yeah, I'm probably going to get slated now by the boys. But I mentioned that I've always had that this sort of military inkling since I was about five years old. And my, my grandfather was a design draftsman for a company called A.V. Rose. A.V. Rose, more familiarly, familiar more familiar name okay is avros avro lancaster bomber um avro vulcan bomber they've signed a lot of the sort of um, aircraft during the war years um so i always had a, a connection with aircraft but there's no way on earth i was going to join the raf uh, <laughs> that's for sure not being this size i wouldn't get into a plane that's for sure um and that's where it was but i really love the aircraft and always have um and essentially, in 2016, I was really lucky. I got the opportunity to fly in a two-seat Spitfire. Now, just this last few days, specifically yesterday, is the Battle of Britain 80th anniversary. So it's been all over the news the last few days. Spitfires everywhere. Everybody saw it for um, Captain Tom when that was going on. The NHS Spitfire going around now. It's a you know, it's always been that symbol of freedom and hope. But I've always had this this real sort of love affair with it. Got the opportunity to go. Um, which was awesome. But while I was there waiting in the holding area to go for the flight, I saw a coffee table. And this coffee table essentially was a Rolls-Royce Griffin engine. So they stripped it down to the cylinder heads in the block and they put a glass piece on the top and it just looks super cool. If you're a petrol head, you just be into engines anyway. Everybody knows a Rolls-Royce Merlin or a Griffin and that's what powered the Spitfires. So anyway, I sort of thought to myself, I'd love one of those, but trying to get hold of a Rolls-Royce Merlin engine or a Griffin is like impossible because these things are 80 plus years old anyway, and just few and far between. So anyway, one night, uh, probably about 12 months later, I'm surfing eBay as you do on a Saturday night after a few uh, few glasses of red, and um, I, I stumble across this, this ad for a a Packard Merlin engine, which was an American-made Merlin engine um, that would, had been recovered. So it had been crashed into the ground in a P-51 Mustang, an American fighter similar to the Spitfire that the Americans were using, but were powered by the same engine, essentially. So it had been recovered, but it was for sale. So I thought, I've got to go and have a look because it just looks cool anyway. So I went up to, it was sort of Northampton kind of way, uh, sorry, Derbyshire kind of way, went up, had a look at it, and to most people, it looked like a pile of scrap metal. You and I, we would see a, a pretty meaty engine there, which was pretty complete. And the guy said, well, I've actually got a couple more. And um, one's for sale, one's not. So he showed me one that was for sale was another Packard Merlin, but the one next to it was a Rolls-Royce Merlin, a very uh, early one. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, you, can't, you can't show that to me and then not expect me to want to try and buy it. And I think it's all part of the plot. I should know better being in sales, but you know what? It bloody worked at the because I just had to have it. So this thing was pretty battered, but it was there and it was recognizable. And um, I got it home. Uh, the missus was mega chuffed with that one. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> I got a nice, nice coffee table for you, love. And it's like, what? But uh, anyway, so I got it back and it was covered in serial numbers, plus the stamps, uh, you know, the crow's foot on it everywhere and was essentially able to track it back through Rolls-Royce and also the RAF. And it transpired that it was from a Spitfire. So these engines could go into anything. So they could go into hurricanes, Spitfires, uh, Lancaster bombers, Mosquito bombers. So we didn't really know. And I wanted to check it out. 
So I find out it's from a Spitfire that was shot down over France in 1941, and it had been recovered and put into a museum and got into a private collection, essentially. Um, and then that's where I got hold of it. But the guy had done a little bit of research, but not much. But it transpired that it was an engine from a Spitfire, a very early Mark, Mark IIb Spitfire. So there were 24 marks of Spitfire in the end. So this was very early on, 1940, 1941. And um, not only was it that, it was part of a famous RAF squadron called 303 Squadron, which was the Polish. So they became um, famous for being the highest scoring squadron in the Battle of Britain. Okay. Uh, so they shot down more aircraft and lost less pilots than any other squadron and went on to sort of have a very uh, glorious career, if you like, with the RAF during the war, supporting the RAF during those war years. So it was an amazing story. And then I went on to sort of want to know more. So I knew the aircraft, but I wanted to know the pilots as well. So again, through all um, Q, I was able to sort of track the records of the aircraft and the pilot logs to find out exactly who flew this aircraft. And it became even more interested than become it, it was like a Hollywood sort of list of pilots. So in all the books that you read and all the pictures that you see now that have been going on social media the last few days, as an example about the Battle of Britain, most of those pictures include 303 Squadron, a very famous picture of these pilots walking away from a hurricane. Well, a lot of those pilots had actually flown this aircraft. Okay. So it's like, blimey, you know, this is pretty amazing really. Um, so, sort of I felt that I needed to do a bit more with this because it was an amazing aircraft amazing story of the pilots and the, the pilot and the pilots I started to sort of just put something together in terms of a project in terms of education which was good just just for shits and giggles really yeah. uh, because it was interesting like being a bit of a spotter I just quite enjoyed it and then it just kind of went mad and it, I put a page up on Facebook and it just has gone crazy so suddenly the world was interested in what we were doing and there was a big push to see more happen. So I continued to put all this history piece together. And then the next question that kept coming is, well, what are you going to do with it? And I said, well, I'm not really sure if I'm honest. Obviously, I can't turn it into a coffee table now. Yeah. Um, I'd love to, and, and the question was, well, can you get it to fly again? Can you get it to fly again? I said, well, the engine's battered, but there's enough of the recovered items now to bring it back together because... In between times, I found a lot of the other items from the aircraft in the museum, which I've managed to swap and bring back to the UK. So I've got all the cockpit detail, all the control column and the trigger button and all the dials of the aircraft. It's amazing. Even the leather seat, which I have next to me here. And I mean, I've got a machine gun, in the a, a Brannon in the corner of my office. Just <laughs> over here, you can't see it. But um, so loads of it. So I applied to the Civil Aviation Authority with all the detail that we put together professionally and accumulated it in the hope that we may be able to get permission to rebuild and restore this aircraft. But it's a very, very difficult process. You can imagine that you can't just buy a piece of kit off of eBay or a piece of old twisted metal because everybody would be doing it. It has to be absolutely waterproof. Um, so that's what I've done is I put the case there. Normally it takes about two years to get it done. And that's even if you're lucky enough to get it submitted, because there's 240 Spitfires left survivors in the world. Not all of those are flying, but there are 240 survivors. Um, so we put it through. And three weeks later, I had, uh, I had uh, an email and a piece of paper come through, which I can show you. Uh, I don't know if you can see this. But this is what I got come through. So it's the registration certificate here from the CAA. 
And basically, it tells you here the aircraft and the number and everything that you've got. It's a bit like your registration logbook, your V5 for a car. Okay. And that's what turned the coffee table into being potentially a flying Spitfire. So it became a very expensive coffee table. <laughs> um, so the problem is it's not just getting the registration course, it's building it. So that's the next project now. So I spent um, the last 12 months sort of getting the project a bit further down the line and working with sponsors and with uh, governments and foundations and institutions to really talk about how do we get this aircraft back in the air because Whilst I said there's 240 survivors, probably about 100 flying Spitfires. But most of them are late marks because the early ones were all shot down or scrapped. So this, as an example, is a Mark IIb Spitfire. There's only three survivors of that in the world. And of those three survivors, mine is one. Another one is its sister aircraft, which is in a Canadian War Museum, which hasn't flown since the 1950s. And the other one is still in the bag. Well, it's... it's still in a box essentially of bits very small bits so our aim is to make this the first mark 2b flying spitfire in the world for well since the 1950s and it will be the only flying one in the world but also the history of the aircraft with it being three or three squadron the the uh the fighting that it sort of participated in it took down three aircraft um and the, and the pilots itself would actually put it in the top three flying spitfires in the world in terms of its importance Wow. So this coffee table turned into something completely different. And here's this bloody ex-bootneck or former Royal Marine doing this, which just makes everybody smile, really, especially my RAF friends who are like, what, the, you know, what's going on? Yeah. But it's great fun. And, and what we're doing is we're kind of, the project's all about sort of community integration now. So we, we've got a high Polish population in the UK now, just under a million Poles that are settled. But of course, we know that we're we're kind of a, a mongrel sort of nation as it goes anyway. And, you know, we do have many cultures that come together. So really, we're trying to bring together everybody now in unity. So helping cultural understanding and breaking down barriers. And a good example of we talked about sort of uh, tours. So Northern Ireland was somewhere that I was I was in Forkill in South Almar. Um, and there's actually a really good project in um, Belfast where it's actually a group of Poles who have gone over there that were kind of almost prejudiced against when they went there. And they then spent time actually researching their own history in Northern Ireland. And that actually now has brought together some of those former fighting factions. And they're all great pals now. And they've sort of worked together on education programs that are all validated. So it's really sort of working well into the communities. And it's not just all about sort of what the Polish did, but it's how you work better together. So culturally, you can sort of help each other and yeah. understand what everybody brings to the table, really, which is a big thing, because often there can be negative press about sort of immigrants coming in and working, you know, but we all know that in every area and aspect of society, they're always going to be a bad apple. But for the majority, actually, they did a really goofing job. Yeah. So. We've been working hard on that, but it's really been and become a global project. So we go across to the US, Canada, out to uh, um, Australia, uh, New Zealand. You know, this has really sort of gone beyond Europe, if you like. So it's really a global thing now. So we've, we're planning to essentially, I've commissioned through the project, a commemoration flight next year to fly a, a Spitfire and a Hurricane that are flying 
out to Poland, but it's going through Europe. So we're touching base on every part of every country on route and stopping off and doing fly pass and stuff, okay. which is really good. And it's just raising awareness again of the international unity we had in 1940, mm. which was celebrated just yesterday. So it's really good timing. But it's talking about the fact that, you know, the Poles called Great Britain the island of last hope. But the reality was at that point in 1940, without 16 countries coming together in unity, you know, we definitely would have been uh, in a totally different situation today. So it's just talking about how we can come together, be better than we are. And I think, you know, we, we involve a lot of veterans in the project, which is really good too. And, and that's a big thing is, again, given veterans purpose, we've got ex-ball engineers, uh, riflemen, um, and amongst our, our ranks, you know, so it's, it's good to sort of the, the, the guys and girls really enjoy getting involved in that. They feel like, I don't know, to a certain extent, they're getting something back that's military-esque style again. So it works well. It's an interesting project anyway. Yeah. And again, like you said just now about the, the engineers and everything. I know we talked specifically about getting in a group of bootnecks again, but I think it's the same with all military people a lot. Once you just, it doesn't matter what their cat badge or branch, once you throw them all in a room together, if they've got another common interest, like in your case, you know, aviation and, and the Spitfire, then it's effectively like having a bunch of bootnecks around you because you've got yeah. that military camaraderie, that banter, and then you're all, you know, passionate about this specific subject. And so again, you can, you can rekindle that serving military side of yourself and, uh, you know, feel that way that you used to feel again. Now, yeah, definitely. I have. Have you got an end goal for this project? As in, because you know, as crude as it sounds, when you started saying how rare this is, the first thing that shot in my mind was cha-ching. You know what I mean? It's got to be worth a lot of money. But you know, you said one of them's in a, in a museum. What What's the end goal? Are you gonna? put it in a museum for other people to enjoy um have you thought that good far question. ahead yeah it's a good question so the plan is that we we're trying to get it rebuilt to fly in uh hey mark sorry i lost you there for a second okay we're back <laughs> we're back we're back i can hear you okay okay i've got you uh yeah so I got as far as you were, you were asking, essentially, what is the long-term plan for the Spitfire? You know, what's the end goal? And it's a good question because you're right. It's, it's an expensive project. And just to give you an indicator, it probably cost about $3.2 to make this thing. Wow. And that's, just to, that's just to make it. So you need then on top of that about £150,000 a year to keep the thing flying and running and hangered and all those kinds of things. So it's a really, it's a serious project. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that we're going to restore this and get it flying for 2025, uh, which will be the 85th anniversary of the Battle of Britain. Um, and we want to take it back to Poland um, at that point. The plan is then that really it will go into trust for the next sort of 15 years to take us up to the 100th anniversary of the Battle of Britain. And that is to ensure that the public across Europe and across the world can enjoy, the, the, enjoy seeing the aircraft fly. Whilst it's nice to see one in a museum, it's far better to see one up in the air. So that's that's my commitment really, is to sort of create the project to last for at least the next sort of five to sort of 20 years. And then at that point, um, it will probably at that point, I 
going to bow out. So at that point, I would hope that we'll see the aircraft either remain in the UK or go back to Poland. Okay, well, good luck with that, mate, because, um, I mean, what, you, what you've done to this point sounds like a heck of a lot of work to me, um, but there's still a long way to go. But I'm sure, you know, with your passion and those guys around you, you're going to make a, a great success of it. Now, as far as I'm aware, there is no RMA Aviation Society as such or, or branch of the RMA. Um, but I am sure there are other servant and retired bootnecks who are also interested in it. Um, do you have anywhere I could direct them if they're listening? And is, is there a, like a military aviation association or? Well, we, we, in terms of sort of getting together on the project, um, anybody's welcome to sort of contact me. You can find more information at, um, www.lagunasspitfirelegacy.org. Um, you, you'll be able to find a website from there. It's also on social media. You'll find us on all the social media spots as well. Um, but again, we're always looking for volunteers. We travel to air shows all around the country, um, which is good. We have a full-size replica of this aircraft, of this Spitfire. So to look at it, it looks exactly the same. So we take that we get the public can sit in that as well. So it's got all the control color, all the, all the cockpit detail, which is good because you know, the young, young kids like to sort of see that as well, which is great, really interactive and good fun. But yeah, we're always looking for people um, to come along and give us a hand. You know, it's a good bit of fun. And um, like you say, it is a long-term project, but I think the short-term goal for us is to get the thing built in the next five years. That's the big thing. And then it will look after itself really in terms of the longer term. But it's been, it's been a good journey from getting to Limpston age 16 with no GCSEs to getting to this point now and sort of owning one of the rarest aircraft in the world. Yeah. Um, but I, I just really got to reiterate that, you know, without the core, uh, you know, and, and everything the core sort of taught me in terms of, um, you know, life's ethos, if you like, it, it would be kind of for nothing because whilst I had had those dips and those those moments once i once i'd sort of wrestled with those demons and learned how to control that it made me a much much better person and i think i think it's to say to everybody you'll have moments i'm sure especially when you leave the call um where you kind of you just threaders um but you know don't be afraid to speak to people and the better you is coming you just need to find it and you need to harness it and sort of believe in yourself and you know you're a bootnecker you know, you're indestructible. Strap on your green lid, mate, and your boots, and off we go. And you've got that in you for life. So that's all I would say is that, you know, you can achieve anything that you want to achieve. And, Mark, you're, you're just an absolute prime example of that. Uh, unbelievable. Oh, thank you. Thank and, um, you know, it's uh, we, we've all got that within us, and we've got that capability. But speaking together is always it, – it, it's a real tonic. It really is. And in the RMA, uh, the Royal Marines Charity, we have uh, numerous services for that, whether, you know, no matter what it is that, that guys and girls and family members want to talk about. But specifically, if anyone wants to contact yourself to talk about this project or other projects or pick your brains about all things Spitfire, where can they get you? Yeah, so... Uh, they can contact. Uh, they can contact us through the website. Contact me, but my my email address is. Uh, it's very simple because I'm a bone bootneck, so it's uh, 
Scotty Booth, S-C-O-T-T-I-E-B-O-O-T-H at hotmail.com. So simples. Awesome. And as we wrap it up, Scott, is there anything else you'd like to add? No, I think um, hopefully people will find that interesting. I think it was just, uh, I, I saw, you know, I saw your podcast and I saw your, uh, your message and I thought, you know, it's something different. And I think it's important to sort of talk. Uh, I think it's important that we know that we're all together in this. And, um, you know, there's life beyond the core, but you can't take the core out of it, you know. Once a Royal Marine, always a Royal Marine. And, um, you know, that is absolutely something we'll all take to the grave with us. You know, that is for sure. So thanks for the opportunity, Mark. And, um, you know, let's see if we can get you up to, uh, to see some Spitfires ripping up and down the track. I'd love to. I'd love to. Mate, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Um, if anyone gets in contact, I'd love to, to know all about it. And keep us up to date with the project and everything you're doing because I'm sure there are lots of people that are listening that would be super interested. I think when we listen to podcasts or we watch movies or even when we have conversations with people, as individuals, we all take away something different. And for me, talking with Scott there, the, the message that I liked to take away was that when he transitioned... You know, the emotions that he went through, the feelings that he went through, they're all very normal. Uh, I personally uh, have been through the same things. And so I think it's very reassuring to hear that it's a natural part of the process. And I also took away from that interview that it's very good to talk, you know, to reach out to other bootnecks or people that understand and just talk to them about those feelings and, and those emotions and that journey that you've been on because it's very similar for all of us. And it's just nice sometimes to hear from someone else that that's normal, that's okay, and that's part of the process. Well, I hope that you enjoyed the episode. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing how this Spitfire project of Scott's develops. Hopefully, in fact, not hopefully, because he's an ex-bootneck, so more than likely, it's going to be phenomenal. He's going to have great success with it. But if I can, later on down the line, um, I'll touch base again with Scott and see how things are progressing, because I know there are people out there that share similar interests with him. Guys, thanks as always for joining us here on the Charlie Charlie One podcast. As always, I appreciate all your comments, your feedback, your shares, your tags, where you tag people into this, to let them hear the stories that we share. Thank you again to the Royal Marine Shop for agreeing to be our sponsor. We're looking forward to developing that relationship and moving things forward. And if anyone listening, you know, Christmas is only around the corner. If you want to buy any Royal Marines branded merchandise, that is the place to do it. Guys, thanks as always, and I will catch you again on the next episode of the Charlie Charlie One podcast.